So, welcome back to the class. Um, I'm excited about what we're doing in here. So, in case you weren't here, or even to catch you up, some of you were, you, there is there is some seating in the or some standing in the front if you want. Uh, yeah, this is a huh. There is uh, my wife is down here. Yeah, come on. Hey, come on. Yeah, we have. Come on, Allison. Come on, Allison. We got room. Yes. All right. Um, to, so to catch you up, uh, I mentioned how uh, I am noticing a shift uh, among students and uh, younger generations that uh, has been described as moralistic therapeutic deism, uh, which is um, a, a way of saying that the, the default or common spirituality among many is uh, moralistic. There's a sense of right and wrong, but there's not really a, uh, an authority about who determines it. The spirituality is therapeutic in the sense that uh, one is looking to God to make them feel a little better uh, about themselves, but not necessarily for, um, for any sort of uh, more authoritative direction. Uh, and it's deistic, meaning uh, God is a little involved, light touch, but uh, not, not as involved as we get in classical Christianity. Uh, the name of the class, um, neither fundamentalism nor liberalism, uh, in case uh, in case you're hearing that in political terms, I'm thinking of this more in fun, in, um, in theological terms. Um, so that fundamentalism uh, we might paint with broad brushstrokes to mean something like uh, those who who will claim something like the Bible only. Uh, in practice, that means they have these unspoken, unacknowledged, uh, unquestioned ways of reading the Bible, with the result. Uh, that uh, they might make something unnecessary uh, seem necessary or something that should be peripheral, uh, central. So, for instance, you've got to believe in the rapture. You've got to believe in the seven-day creation if you're a real Christian. You've got to vote Republican if you're a real Christian. You've got to believe in immersion baptism or acapella. You better read the KJV. Uh, whatever it is, it's, it's taking something that might be uh, where there should be maybe room for flexibility and making it central. So that would be... Um, what we're going to be describing as fundamentalism, whereas liberalism uh, is going to point to no real ultimate authority. Uh, the Bible, tradition, conscience are all, all things that, that, that come into effect, but there's no ultimate authority, and so the individual becomes the authority. And I'm saying that these two extremes um, are, don't represent the best wisdom for Christians. Um, and as I pointed out, was I, with what I see among the students and younger generations, which I, I like to think that I'm maybe still uh, at least on the cusp of the younger generations, is um, we're starting to have this talking past each other because um, something closer to fundamentalism might represent uh, the, the older generations and something closer to liberalism or moralistic therapeutic deism represents younger generations. Uh, and so uh, because they have different claims of authority, different ways of making sense of things. When you come up with a controversial issue, you'll have people in churches uh, appealing to different things, and therefore the conversation isn't going anywhere uh, partic particularly fruitful. Um, uh, so trying to think of a better way of dealing with that. So uh, my strategy, uh, I guess I could say our strategy, because I've been teaching this class previously with Lauren White um, and um, Matt Hearn, is there maybe one guy who'd be willing to, we got Sandy Collins. We're not going to make Sandy Collins wait in the hall. Uh, I'm going to give her a seat. Yeah, she's, you're, you're, uh, yeah, you get special status. You have blessed this church. Huh? 
Okay, you're good then. Okay, I. Uh, um, so, uh, so we're gonna we're gonna look at some controversial topics. Uh, we're gonna think about what it looks like to to um, navigate those with wisdom. Uh, I suggested bad strategies that are all too common would be to look at isolated proof text. So you just pull a Bible verse out of context, um, or um, to appeal to vague platitudes. So surely. Uh, we can say God is love, therefore X or Y or whatever it might be. Um, so proof texts aren't enough. Vague platitudes uh, aren't enough. Appealing to just our feelings is not sufficient either. Uh, we need something uh, a little bit more robust. So uh, that's what we're going to try to do in here. Uh, so I gave you, I finally made a handout after three semesters um, that is capturing something of the framework. It is... Not simplistic, although I think uh, that there is something maybe simple about it, but uh, I think it was, I quoted C.S. Lewis, uh, if you want something uh, more complex, don't complain when it's more complex, although he says it much better. Uh, so if the, um, if the simplistic kind of easy answers that you get from fundamentalism or liberalism uh, we're finding unsatisfying, then we need to be prepared to do something a little bit more complicated. Um, so... Brief recap, what I've suggested is um, we might uh, know something about the biblical plot line. So that's on the back here. So uh, when we're thinking through controversial issues, uh, our, our beliefs about them, or our, as we're forming beliefs about them, they should make sense within the bigger picture. And I've gone over this in detail, or we've gone over this in detail previously, so I won't do that right now because we have more ground to cover, but the basic moves... Uh, it's kind of picking up on what some think of Scripture as like a six-act play. You have creation where things are good, the fall or decreation where things get messed up, and then this, this movement of God bringing restoration through Jesus and uh, ultimately through the renewed creation. So that's one, one way of, of plotting things. If you see on our map, that's up here, the north. That's our biblical plot line in this compass. Uh, next is the rule of faith, which um, represents the confessions... Uh, the, the central beliefs that have been confessed across centuries, cultures, denominations. And so we looked at the Apostles' Creed a couple semesters ago. Um, and these are, these are all biblical ideas, uh, but it's, it's pulling out that which is particularly foundational, where if you m remove some of these things, then Christianity changes. Um, so we've got north, uh, we've got east. Uh, Jesus says all of Scripture um, should... Um, hang on love of God and love of neighbor, so that's south. Uh, and then coherency of scripture, which is uh, west, would be, uh, it's a way of saying that we expect, because scripture is inspired by God, even though there might be multiple human authors um, at work in this, uh, with some diverse angles and perspectives, that ultimately there's going to be a, a fundamental unity to the canon uh, of scripture. So we would expect um, that, uh, you know, there 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 will be more um, agreement on these doctrines than disagreement. So that's, that's something of the, of the framework. And then connecting all these, because it's all interconnected, is this acronym SEARCH. So we've listened for the Spirit, ideally, uh, allowing the Spirit to shape us, our hearts, our minds. Uh, this is not something where you just show up to Sunday school class and decide you're going to be open to the Spirit. This is something that is a lifelong process. So peoples and communities... Uh, that have been uh, devoting themselves to being shaped by the Spirit uh, will be in a better position than those peoples and communities who uh, do not 
make intentional space to be shaped by the Spirit. Um, uh, experience uh, is going to be uh, paying attention uh, to the experience of um, individuals, communities, uh, cultural experience. So this can be broadly understood. Ancestors, what I mean by that is we're listening for how uh, the churches throughout history uh, have understood certain topics. So I'm, I'm distinguishing in this class between what I think of as capital T tradition, like we get in the rule of faith where it's all Christians have held to this kind of tradition, like the Trinity, um, and lowercase t tradition, which represents something that's less authoritative. Um, uh, reason, so we should be uh, bringing in our critical thinking uh, to this. Some logic. Uh, community, so not only are we listening to the, the community of our ancient uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, but what does the global community say about this? If we believe that uh, we are, as we confess, one holy Catholic, lowercase c, meaning universal, global church, uh, then we shouldn't think that uh, we have nothing to learn from our, um, our brothers and sisters in different uh, countries and cultures. Uh, they might make us wear blind spots that we have, uh, as well as perhaps the cross-denominational community. Um, I know we don't use the D word, uh, some in Church of Christ, um, but uh, I think it's, it's wise for us to, to listen. Uh, and then we do this with humility. So none of this in the search column uh, should be appealed to as the, like, you know, because the ancestors said it, that's the end of the conversation. Now these are conversation enders. They're more like tools uh, that are helping us navigate um, the terrain. So hopefully that catches us up on on where we have been. Uh, and so today, strangely enough, I thought uh, that hell might be of less controversy than some of the other stuff we'd get to. Um, I know, we're, we're weird. But, uh, but you know, in some, in some gatherings, hell's a big deal. In ours, it's, it already feels like maybe there's a little room for disagreement here. So I thought um, it might be okay. And then my, I've been thinking through all kinds of puns uh, that I might use in this class that are hell-related, and I can't decide whether I should use them or not. Oh, go ahead. Well, here's... I, I, my first, probably my first year of teaching uh, here at, at Otter Creek, I don't know who sent it, because I, I didn't know anyone's name, but I still remember uh, that the compliment I got was also a critique of Lee because it said something like, I really appreciate your classes and that you don't use crude language to get your point across. And I thought... That's like a doubly good compliment because it's critiquing Lee Camp, who will uh, use. Uh, so, so I want to keep getting those kinds of compliments uh, uh, that insult Lee simultaneously. Uh, those are the best kind. Uh, so we'll we'll think a little bit about hell today. Um, hell, yes. Uh, hell no. Uh, see, there, it's there. This will be one hell of a class. Um, I couldn't, I couldn't resist because I know it's going to make my wife cringe. Uh, so, what we're going to think about? My goal, as I've said before, or I said last week, my goal in this class is not just let's try to get the right answers or the options for the right answers, but let's train ourselves to learn to think accordingly because there's going to be more issues and more questions that come up. Um, and, and what we want is to have the instincts to think like Christians, to think with Christian wisdom uh, rather than to think in this kind of simplistic or knee-jerk reaction that we might find in um, the far left or far right and fundamentalism or liberalism. 
So we're training our instincts. So a, a few little things to get us started about our conversation about hell. Um, hell translates uh, the Greek word Gehenna, uh, which is from, um, uh, it's a reference to the Valley of Hinnom. Uh, there, kind of like a big old ditch uh, outside of Jerusalem. So uh, in the same way that Babylon comes to mean more than just ancient Babylon, it can be Rome, it can be the great, you know, um, culture that's coming at the end of time, or whatever it might be, or Sodom comes to represent, you know, any sort of city that might have licentiousness, isn't that a great word that you don't get to use enough, uh, so Gehenna, hell, uh, I think is, is not meaning literally hell is going to be in this, this great valley here, but it represents um, that which is opposed to God and where God might bring judgment because uh, this valley uh, is associated with the worship of Baal and Molech. Uh, in particular, child sacrifices offered by uh, a couple kings of Israel, Ahaz and Manasseh. And it also seems to be the place where um, Jeremiah prophesies that there's going to be this fiery destruction uh, for the rebellious. So um, this place signifies something of opposition to God and where God might bring punishment. Um, the, uh, the Old Testament is, a, is pretty vague about the afterlife. It's as though God was, you get references to Sheol or Hades. It's as though God was, was maybe calling, for thinking of biblical plotline, when he initiates his work of restoration, uh, he's, he's training them to think about the present uh, more than focusing too much on the future. Although, when he promises things like justice, and if you're faithful to me, I'll be faithful to you, and then it doesn't actually work out where sometimes the faithful are those who experience injustice. It's like it begins to grow in them a sense of there must be something more. Surely God is going to, to make things right. And so the Old Testament, you'll get in Daniel this hints of something bigger. And then that uh, gets spelled out more in, um, in the New Testament. So the Old Testament is vague. Um, and the New Testament, then we're, what we're going to think about is, is what does this teach? Uh, how should we think about that? So... If we've got our, our map here, uh, perhaps we will start uh, with the rule of faith. So if you flip over, we've got the Apostles' Creed. And these are going to offer something like parameters. Here's how we might, all right, we got an issue. Let's go to the rule of faith, see if it gives us any wisdom. Um, and we've got, uh, we'll look at the, uh, at the big paragraph in the middle. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. So in this condensed fashion, you get some, some major um, teachings that Christians have believed in. Uh, and so already if we're thinking, how should Christians think about something like the doctrine of hell? We think, okay, what's, what's the, the, the uh, cliff notes here in the rule of faith suggest? And we get things like a recognition of the need for forgiveness. So if there's a need for forgiveness or there's the crucifixion of Jesus, both of these things suggest something that, about sin being dealt with. Sin needs dealing with. Um, and then you add to that on here this reference to judgment. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. Um, from the 
the Apostles' Creed itself, from the rule of faith, when we're kind of in this initial process, okay, how should we think about hell? How should we think about this as wise Christians who are attuned to what Christians have always believed? Whatever our, our belief about hell is, it should make some sense of the, the larger recognition that sin needs to be dealt with and that there will be judgment. So already, if your view of hell can't fit these two in, it's probably less than Christian. So far, at least less than Christians have understood it for 2,000 years, which means it's probably less than Christian. Um, uh, anytime we move outside of something like the rule of faith, that should be a major warning sign uh, that maybe the problem uh, lies with my own uh, way of viewing this. Maybe I've got some sort of cultural lens here that's shaping me uh, in ways that uh, other Christians throughout the centuries and the cultures have seen differently. Um, so, uh, this is kind of beginnings of our parameters. Uh, if we move uh, second uh, up to the biblical plot line and think about how we understand uh, our doctrine of hell, how it might map onto the biblical plot line, uh, if you're familiar with the biblical story, and I'm going to assume most of you are at least vaguely familiar, um, you know that, that when sin enters God's good creation where things were in harmony, it brings a destructive element to it, lots of destruction. Uh, and uh, you have from the beginning with Adam through Israel and beyond uh, these cycles where sin <coughs> has consequences and uh, God judges it, uh, and then he seeks to bring um, reconciliation God initiates reconciliation, and then people typically uh, sin um, takes back over, and then there's judgment and consequences. So um, it, it further underscores that in the biblical plot line, uh, sin has, um, would say, consequences. I know the marker's bad here. Consequences attached to it. I'm going to be vague with the language of attached. Maybe they're natural. You, you go against the grain of how God created you, there's just simply natural consequences for that. Uh, and maybe there's also some divine punitive consequences that aren't so much uh, natural uh, outworkings, but, um, yeah, just the, the uh, punishment for going against it. But regardless, uh, there is God judges sin, there are consequences attached, maybe both natural, both, uh, I don't know, divine, punitive consequences that go with that. Uh, we also... Um, are reminded, as in the rule of faith, that the only way sin is ultimately dealt with is through the death and resurrection of Jesus. So if our view of sin is small enough where we can tip the balance by our own good works, that's not Christian. Um, we need to, uh, if we're thinking like Christians about this, recognize that sin is something that we cannot fix on our own. And sin has such devastating uh, effects and has such control that the only thing that is uh, greater than sin, the only thing that can adequately deal with sin is God taking on flesh, dying, and resurrecting. So, whatever our view of sin is that's going to maybe shape our view of hell, we have to, to hold it um, in the same way that the biblical plotline teaches us to. And uh, towards the end, or at the end of this, where the arrow winds up with new creation, uh, the view is that there's going to be no more sin, and justice is going to reign. So God is ultimately going to deal with sin. So there is going to be an ultimate... Let me see if this red one is that anything. Should have been using red for hell day anyway, or orange. Yes. <laughs> ultimate 
dealing with sin. It's in the... So this is, this is like bread and butter. This is just standard. I'm not doing anything particularly creative. It's, this is our story, and this is what Christians have always believed. And that in and of itself begins to suggest some parameters uh, where you can see, like, okay, some views of, of hell that might be uh, popular notions or gaining in popularity uh, may already struggle to fit within this, uh, and at least their uh, popular expressions. So uh, we'll move then from here uh, to, to where we'll spend most of our focus uh, for today, and that will be thinking about the coherency of Scripture. So how do the various descriptions of hell, um, can they go together? So we might be asking, um, so I'll give you four views of hell, um, four options of hell, and so we might be asking ourselves, which, which of these four options seems to make the best sense of the biblical data? Um, or maybe two or three of them do. So I'm going to erase, erase this. So as I'm doing this, we're, as I'm sketching these four different views, we're listening to um, the larger witness of Scripture and how these four views might make sense of what I just sketched on the board. And ideally, if I time this well, at the end we'll be able to say, okay, so when we think about hell, there's going to be some things that are... We're going to have some central doctrines or central theological beliefs that are going to inform that. There's probably some necessary things, and we're already seeing some of that. There needs to necessarily, our view of hell needs to necessarily uh, say something about um, judgment uh, and something about the destructive nature of sin uh, and something about uh, that sin can only be accomplished uh, through the grace um, bought by Jesus. Um, And then things that might deny judgment or the consequences of sin would be outside. But what falls in that flexible range there? Okay, so four views of hell. Uh, first and maybe most, uh, the most <coughs> dominant view of hell is called uh, eternal conscious torment. Eternal conscious torment. So ECT for short, looks like etc. Huh? Uh, eternal conscious torment. So, um, oh, let me back up just just slightly. I'll put ECT up here first. Uh, throughout the New Testament, you have a few descriptors of hell that run throughout, like reference to fire, that it's eternal. And the language of destroy or destruction is the most common language. So as we're thinking about the coherency of Scripture, we should be asking ourselves, uh, can these four views account for the language that dominates the view of hell? Uh, So with ECT, eternal conscious torment, uh, the fire, uh, for some it might be literal, um, but for others, it's symbolic. Um, but regard the, the main point of this is eternal is understood as unending, unceasing. Uh, and destruction is understood as um, that there is an, a conscious awareness of suffering. 
There's a conscious awareness of suffering. So, for all eternity, this person, this soul or body, however it might be understood, is uh, aware that they are in torment. It's eternal meaning, it's unending. So, uh, and to... um, to support this, they might turn to biblical texts like Isaiah 66, uh, this, this vision of God um, setting, bringing the new heavens and new earth and judging evil, uh, and that people will go out and see the cor- corpses of the people who rebelled against me, where their worm never dies, where their fire is never extinguished, they will be a horror to everyone. Or in Revelation 20, Then the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet also were. Their painful suffering will be inflicted on them day and night, forever and always. So, um, for for those who who subscribe to eternal conscious torment, they think this probably makes the best sense of the biblical data. And if we're thinking about our acronym SEARCH, uh, they might say... Uh, For our ancestors in the faith, you see this in folks like Augustine, and then it dominates the view uh, post-Augustine, maybe up until recently. So there's a lot of Christian tradition behind this. Uh, How might they reason through this, the R of search? Um, They might reason that to reject God and to reject the gift of of grace offered by the crucifixion of Jesus is, um, is an infinite sin worthy of infinite punishment? So this isn't just a, a, a sin of uh, I do to another mortal, but when you sin against an immortal perfect being, uh, it, is an, uh, it is this kind of eternal sin that, that the only punitive response that's appropriate to that is an uh, eternal suffering. All right, so that's, that's one view. Um, the next view... Uh, would be called annihilationism. So, uh, in this view, uh, the fire is seen as destructive, and destructive uh, is meant just as we typically hear uh, destruction. So, uh, instead of hearing it as uh, kind of symbolic for being aware, it's literally destroyed, as in ceasing to exist. Ceasing to exist. Um, The language of eternal, according to annihilationism then, um, is that it's permanent. That is, this is an eternal consequence. When God annihilates you uh, in the judgment... Uh, then there, is, there are no second chances. This is eternal. This is for good. No mulligans. Um, so they're still trying to take seriously the biblical language of eternal, um, but they're also uh, trying to take seriously the biblical language of destruction, which dominates, and destruction is typically understood as... Perfect. Yeah, yeah, not as ongoing being alive. So... When they read texts like I read to you from Isaiah 66, uh, where uh, uh, the worm never dies and the fire is never extinguished, they say that's just a symbolic way of saying um, that that fire is going to accomplish its work. And notice, in that same verse, they will go out and see the corpses. 
So, not the living, not the conscious, but the dead. And so they would say that uh, you get that same symbolic language of unceasing fire as, uh, as a description of what God does to Sodom and Gomorrah. It's not literally still burning, it just finishes its job. Nothing's going to stop it until it accomplishes what it's doing. So, um, for, for um, well, they're right that the biblical language is predominantly this. And so what they would say is, you take a couple vague texts, you who believe in eternal conscious torments, a couple vague texts about it being um, uh, unceasing, and you read into that that you must be self-aware of what's going on, and then every time you see destruction, you read conscious torment into it. And what they say is, in fact, the overwhelming majority of time when you get the language of destruction, it seems like it's saying ceasing to exist. And because that's the overwhelming way that it makes sense in its context, then the couple times where it might be vague, it makes a lot more sense to go with the weight of the majority rather than let the minority text rule, especially when there are ways to read it. So, what about uh, Revelation 20, uh, where their painful suffering will be inflicted upon them day and night, forever and always? The person who subscribes to annihilationism says, yes, on the surface that sounds like it's unceasing, unending, and they're going to be aware of it. But in fact, if you pay attention, that revelation is full of symbolism, and one of the things that's going to be in this lake of fire forever and always is the beast, and the beast represents a government, like, or a city. Cities aren't self-conscious or aware. Uh, it seems like the symbolism is pointing to something different. So how would they reason uh, if we're thinking about the R in our search, they would say, regardless of, uh, yes, it's a big deal to sin against God, but mortals cannot do anything uh, to, uh, a, to justly be condemned for an infinite amount of time. Uh, that just doesn't seem uh, to fit, that there's nothing that a finite being can do that should receive infinite torment by a just God. Moreover, um, the biblical witness seems to be, although uh, we have often forgotten this, is that God does recognize that some sins seem to be greater than others. So you have different sacrifices required for different sins. A high-handed sin uh, has different sacrifices than a, um, a sin done unintentionally. Uh, you even get Jesus saying, uh, Woe to you, it will be worse for you. The language itself of worse suggests that there is a hierarchy or something like that. But if everyone's getting the same punishment of eternal conscious torment, then it's not worse for anyone, um, uh, arguably. So the annihilationists would say, reasonably, this makes more sense of who we are as finite beings. Um, on top of that, they would say that according to Christian tradition, um, our souls are not inherently immortal. That might be a platonic view. So if our souls are inherently immortal, uh, then they must exist forever. But from the Christian view, uh, life is a gift. And so um, God has to give that gift of life or we cease to exist. Uh, and so it would seem as though he may destroy that. And this idea can be read in early Christian writers, such as Ignatius, the Epistle of Barnabas, Irenaeus, and Athanasius. And those last two are heavy hitters uh, in Christian tradition. Uh, although I won't go into that, but it it's, uh, can be seen in the ancient tradition. So uh, here's a couple examples so far. Next one. The next example would be universalism.
Um, and here, uh, the language of uh, destruction might be seen as something like purification or uh, an ending of sin more than the person. Maybe a broad way of understanding that. The language of, of eternal, uh, the Greek language of ionios, uh, would be interpreted as something like of an age. Would be one way of making sense of that without just saying, oh, we're going to ignore that part of the biblical data. Those who are trying to be biblical and think like Christians would say, well, that's, oh, sorry, I get ahead of myself. Um, universalism is the belief that ultimately everyone will be saved. In the end, all will be saved. Um, there may be a, a time where you have the fire, the symbol of fire represents not destruction, but purification, burning away the dross, um, getting rid of sin, and that this time of purification might last for a period of time, uh, but ultimately um, it, will, it will end. Um, if we're thinking of the R and reason uh, here, there is... Um, this is where some might say, look, if God has revealed himself um, and Jesus, uh, who, who practices this gracious love even to his enemies, then might there be reason to expect that ultimately um, that he will uh, make it possible for all to be saved? Um, and also among this, they might say, if God's will is that all will be saved, can humans ever ultimately um, thwart God's will? Uh, so, um, and the uh, ancestors of the faith, we might get origin. Um, recently, George MacDonald does something on this. Uh, this, is, this gets the, probably the least amount of support. Um, and in my mind, you mostly get there by saying, surely, surely that's, this is, these can't be the end of the story. Surely, based on who God is, um, there must be, at some point... Uh, things being set right. Yes, there may be punishments, there may be purification, but, but ultimately God's will will be done. Whereas the annihilationists would say, no, the biblical plot line shows us that some consequences stick. Um, and that um, while, for instance, uh, a Hitler might experience in annihilationism a certain uh, longer amount of uh, punitive um, punishment before he ceases to exist, whereas um, someone who is not a Hitler may receive less, the punishment will fit the crime before ceasing to exist. They would say, ultimately, uh, things are set right. Um, and then the fourth view might be described, I just don't know better language for this, so I call it holistic brokenness. Uh, and holistic brokenness, we might think of as hell being the opposite of heaven, or hell being the opposite of the new heavens and new earth. Um, so you might see this, particularly looking at our biblical plot line. If, if uh, heaven or new heavens and new earth are going to be um, all the brokenness and destructiveness removed, uh, where sin no longer reigns, and God reigns, and there, things are right physically, socially, spiritually, hell would be following this arrow on down, uh, where sin has its total reign, uh, physically, socially, spiritually. Uh, and so the language of fire represents 
um, just the destructive, corrosive nature uh, of sin. Uh, eternal would be, it's going to um, just keep going. So if you've ever read uh, The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis, this has a picture of something like that where, um, so C.S. Lewis can say something like, uh, the, the doors of hell are locked from the inside. That is, uh, or he'll say, um, heaven is human saying to God, your will be done, us surrendering to God. And hell is God saying to humans, your will be done. That is, if you want life apart from me, uh, if you want to be out of my presence and go your own way, then here are the natural consequences. And so hell becomes uh, sin reigning uh, and it having its own destructive kind of effect. And I think you get that, or you can defend that most reasonably uh, by thinking about how that might fit in the larger biblical story and in the symbolism of hell. Um, so th- this is something of a, yeah? You go back to the original sin of eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Mm-hmm. And you think about all the horror knowing bad things in your head that you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. This cleansing, somehow getting it, you're ridding yourself of knowledge of evil. Yeah. You know, you'd, you'd like to be free of that. And, uh, you know, Daniel's plea in uh, chapter 9 of Daniel, he says, when he's praying for the restoration of, of the temple and rebuilding of Jerusalem, says, not because we deserve it, right. but because of your grace or compassion, please mm-hmm. answer our prayer. And, and uh, reaching out and asking God to rid us of the original problem. If we didn't know about evil, yeah. we'd, be, we'd, yeah. we'd be okay. <laughs> yeah. But and we, if we do, we, we wrestle with it every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if we just decide to uh, turn that part of ourselves off and embrace it, or let it rule us, then, uh, well, we know the consequences in our own lives, and uh, what C.S. Lewis is doing is teasing out the consequences if it was to just run its course without intervention from God. Another comment here, and then I'll, I'll put this back on the map, and then I'll take more. Yeah? Growing up in an uh, <clears throat> African-American conservative church of Christ culture, Hell was ever present. Uh huh. I mean, we've always known and we've always on the way. It was everywhere. And uh, one of the things I like, I love about Otto Creek, and really specifically one of the things I love about Josh is there's not an infatuation or an obsession with going straight to hell. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, I don't even think Josh knows that there is a hell. I mean, so, so why do you think that in this uh, sort of evangelical, very upper class, white environment, I mean, with the exception of the temperature of the room, this is like the only time that hell is ever even yeah. come up. Yeah, well, I, that's a bigger question than I can, uh, so I'll give a short answer that is maybe insufficient. One, I think uh, there is a reaction against the hellfire brimstone that, that's, that would have been, I think, across you know, many denominations, uh, even white denominations, uh, and so it was recognized as unhealthy, and so as we typically do, the pendulum swings to the reverse where we never talk about it, uh, rather than being wise and having a moderate you know, recognition of it, and um, no one likes to talk about hell, uh, and maybe particularly when, um, if, if you're right, maybe uh, being in environments where many of us uh, live comfortably, globally speaking, uh, we don't like things that make us uncomfortable. That's just a, a, a guess That's n- I've not formulated a lot of thoughts. I could be totally wrong, so take that as a, a knee-jerk thought 
from my own perspective, uh, as one who's white and lives in relative comfort and doesn't like thinking about this. So yeah, this is, this is more confessional than uh, judgmental. Um, so let's, let's look at the map here. Um, and we'll, we'll, we'll work our way out of these bubbles as we think about uh, how to understand this. So uh, what, when we're navigating something like the doctrine of hell, what should we think of as central? Well, there is a loving, holy, just God. But this is part of what we believe as Christians. Also central is the belief in um, the atoning death of Jesus. So when we make sense of hell, we have to take into account that God is holy, God is loving, God is just, and the only ultimate way that sin is fixed is through the atoning death of Jesus. Not through our good works, not through God being like, meh, it's just sin. Uh, we have to, to our doctrines of hell uh, as Christians should, should uh, align with that central idea. What might be necessary based on our survey? survey? Um, it seems as though it's necessary to believe uh, that there will be some sort of judgment. That's in the creed, that's throughout the biblical plot line. Um, that judgment uh, of sin uh, is entailed uh, in the Christian system, uh, which means that there is expectation uh, that uh, we must understand that our kind of human response is that we must confess our sins to align ourselves appropriately. Uh, we should practice repentance um, and that we need uh, forgiveness. Uh, now, what about people who've never heard all that? Well, we don't have time to get into that today. But in the general idea is that our sense of hell, uh, the basics is um, there's judgment, sin must be dealt with, and that humans uh, do so only by the grace of God. Um, also necessary, I think as we've teased out, is we must sense that uh, destruction is part of it. Whatever hell is, wherever you line up on this, something is going to be destroyed, uh, whether that is uh, through an ongoing suffering, uh, whether that is through ceasing to exist, or just the, the purging of sin itself, uh, leaving us uh, maybe just barely getting away with what's left of us. Where might there be flexibility? I would suggest... Uh, there might be flexibility uh, on how we understand eternal. Um, and here's where the, the search uh, might lead some to say, you know, I think, and this is more, I think annihilationism makes a lot of sense of the coherency of Scripture. However, however, even though I have some serious problems with this, uh, when I look at the biblical plot line and the biblical data, um, because it's been represented for, you know, 1,500 years or more in Christian tradition, and because there's a way to read Scripture coherently, I, I'm not going to say that's an unchristian belief. I would just say, <coughs> I think it's wrong, but I, I can respect that someone would be there. Uh, universalism, I would say you're, you are on the cusp of flexible and outside because um, it requires a lot, more, um, a lot more wiggling with the biblical data. Um, However, it's shown up throughout Christian tradition. There you get, kind of pops up, I think. Uh, and um, there, it, it's rooted in um, a belief about the nature of God, uh, so in a, in a very Christian sense. But it can't be the kind of universalism where God's like, oh, I don't care. I don't care about sin. Everyone's in. Throw the doors open. It's got to be the kind of universalism that recognizes that sin's a big deal, 
The only way anyone is getting in uh, is if God ex decides to extend the grace of the cross to those who've never embraced it themselves. Um, or if God, uh, as someone like George MacDonald says, is he lets them experience the unrestrained consequences of sin into eternity until they finally hit rock bottom uh, like an addict and realize, okay, okay, now I'll turn to God. Um, but any kind of light view is unchristian. Uh, and then holistic brokenness... Um, I see that as a potentially respectable way of, of hearing this uh, appropriately, symbolically. So those, those might be some flexible things. Is it unending? Is it reversible? Is it of an age? Is it conscious or not? Um, uh, what's the nature of the torment? This is where the flexibility might be. So central, God is just and loving. We need the atonement. Necessary, there will be judgment and destruction, and we, um, we need to align ourselves accordingly. What might be flexible... Uh, is it unceasing? Uh, are we aware of it? Um, what would be outside would be to deny sin, to deny judgment, to deny destruction, to deny uh, the holiness and justice um, of God. So hopefully this gets us kind of training our minds to think like Christians uh, before, um, well, before we get into more difficult things. Uh, all right. 1051. So if you have questions, come up after, or uh, if you just want to stand in front of the fan, uh, that's fine too. Maybe we'll see if we can get a bigger classroom with the AC on. Okay. Thank you all for coming.